the average American diet is 70% carbohydrate. It's a low protein, low fat, high carbohydrate diet. And we've seen the result of that. The result of that is an increase across the board in every chronic degenerative disease known to man. Again, causation and correlation aren't the same thing, but we're now seeing the research play this out. So the research is actually showing like ketogenic diets, reversing seizure disorders, reversing diabetes, reversing heart disease, which is a high fat diet, which we've been told for so many years, high fat is bad and it causes heart disease. You're listening to Eat for Life, the show that aims to help you identify the root causes of what ails you so you can heal and live the life you are meant for. I'm your host, Sammy G. Traditional heart disease protocols with their emphasis on lowering cholesterol have been a disaster from the start. Science has shown that cholesterol levels are a poor predictor of heart disease and that standard prescriptions for lowering it such as ineffective, low-fat, high-carb diets, and serious side-effect-causing statin drugs obscure the real causes of heart disease. Even doctors at leading institutions have been misled for years based on creative reporting of research results from pharmaceutical companies intent on supporting the billion-dollar-a-year cholesterol-lowering drug industry. Now they have a new target market, children. Yes, you heard me correctly, children. I have been seeing this egregious trend for quite some time now, which is why this episode is so important, and I encourage sharing it far and wide. In adults, statins can lead to Alzheimer's disease and dementia, cause liver damage and sexual dysfunction, especially low testosterone in men. They also create the conditions for heart disease and cancer because they poison a crucial enzyme that regulates cholesterol to begin with. If statins can do this much damage in adults, how do you think they impact children? Children put on statins results in severe issues with sexual development and maturation, as well as neurological problems and learning disabilities. Statins significantly deplete CoQ10, glutathione, one of our body's master antioxidants, vitamin E, and zinc, to name a few. Today, I brought Dr. Peter Osborne back on the show to discuss the importance of cholesterol, how the medical industry skews lab ranges to push statins, and the real underlying causes of heart disease. Dr. Peter Osborne is the clinical director of Origins Healthcare in Sugarland, Texas. He is a doctor of chiropractic, a doctor of pastoral science, and a board-certified clinical nutritionist. Often referred to as the gluten-free warrior, Dr. Osborne is one of the most sought-after alternative health and nutrition experts in the world. His practice is centered on helping those with painful, chronic, degenerative, and autoimmune diseases using natural methods. He is one of the world's leading authorities on gluten sensitivity and lectures nationally on this and many other nutritionally-related topics. Dr. Osborne is the author of the best-selling book, No Grain, No Pain, and is the founder of GlutenFreeSociety.org. Additionally, he is the author of The Gluten-Free Health Solution and The Glutenology Health Matrix, a series of videos and eBooks designed to help educate the world about gluten. Thanks for being with us today. Here's my conversation with Dr. Osborne. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Osborne. It's great to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks for having me on. 
Last time you were on, we talked about the problem with grains and their connection to autoimmune disease, especially so-called gluten-free grains. And this is important because we know grains and processed foods that contain seed oils and refined sugar create a lot of inflammation in the body and are a major factor in heart disease, even though the powers that be want us to believe it's meat and animal fats that are to blame. So to set the stage a bit, I'm excited to talk about the true underlying causes of heart disease and all the propaganda that still to this day surrounds cholesterol. I also would like to talk about testing because, as you know, this is another form of, in my opinion, trickery that Big Pharma uses to support the use of statins and why statins should be avoided. So, Dr. Osborne, let's start with the basics. We need cholesterol to thrive because cholesterol is an essential molecule of life from which we make hormones. For example, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and vitamin D are all made from cholesterol. It's also essential to repair damaged tissue and, and buffer stress. So I'd love it if you could start us off with what are some other ways that cholesterol supports us and protects us and why is it so critical to our health? Cholesterol is a vital molecule. And as you stated, it's a precursor to all of our sex steroids. So if we're looking at a man who's maybe having their cholesterol lowered artificially through medication, one of the trends that we've seen since the early 80s when statins were introduced as a drug of choice is the prevalence of low testosterone centers. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see these things popping up on every street corner nowadays. It's like a 7-Eleven type, go get your testosterone fix. And it's a travesty, really, honestly. And I, I don't say this to offend anyone who is gay or anyone who has an alternative sexual preference, because I, I believe that what goes on in, in your sexual life is your business and no one else's. But when you mass drug a society to artificially lower testosterone, you're going to get less manly men. Yes. And there's this theme of masculine toxicity that goes around, which in my humble opinion is nonsense. We need men just like we need women. I mean, there's a balance. It's a yin and a yang, or if you will, it's a balancing flow. We need both energies to thrive. And the demasculinization of men has occurred through the use of these types of medications. Aside from the fact that, you know, lowering cholesterol suppresses the ability for the body to be able to even properly produce testosterone. Now, when men are low in testosterone, there's an increased risk for cancers and heart disease, loss of muscle mass, sarcopenia, which is age-related muscle loss. And so now what we're left with is the prevalence of the, the very disease that we're trying to treat, right? So when you lower the ability for the body to produce something that can actually protect us from heart disease in the name of regulating risk for heart disease, you're losing. And that's just one example. I mean, you mentioned also vitamin D. Vitamin D is cardiovascular protective as a pre-hormone for many pathways of the body. It regulates insulin production. It regulates blood sugar. It regulates hormone production. It regulates immune system function. You know, when your white blood cells are born, generally they have to be taken through a filter so that you're having white blood cells that do the appropriate response. And if you don't have adequate vitamin D, you get aggressive white blood cells that can lead to autoimmune problems, or you get underactive white blood cells that can lead to cancers. So all in the name of lowering cholesterol, which many people don't understand that cholesterol won a Nobel Prize in 1998. It was a Nobel Prize because it was discovered that you cannot form neural synapses without cholesterol. There's a process biochemically 
in neurons called synaptogenesis. It's how nerve cells communicate is through what's called a synapse. And you need cholesterol to form those synapses. And, you know, again, one of the trends that we've seen with lowering cholesterol is an increased risk for dementia. And so some people would argue with me and say correlation is not causation. I, I don't disagree. Correlation is not causation. But we have to start looking at this because to demonize a molecule that the body so prizes and so needs to do so many different functions is a very short-sighted approach to long-term health. And if we look empirically at the data, a lot of times doctors will come and argue using research studies is a valid point for their argument. My first question is always, okay, a research study was funded probably by a drug company through what's called a CRO. A CRO is a research organization. It's, it's like a shell organization where money is filtered through universities into research organizations. And so they're basically, they're paid farms that do pharmaceutical research. And so these PhDs and, and doctors who do this type of research know that if they don't publish a result that their funders want, they're going to lose their funding. And so a lot of the research on cholesterol, beneficial aspects of lowering cholesterol, a lot of that research has been produced by these very types of organizations. I mean, this is not a mystery. This is not a little known thing. I mean, over the last 25 years, we've had, I can't remember, it's by eight or nine journal editors for major medical journals like New England Journal and JAMA come out and say, the system's rigged, folks. We quit. We can't do good science when we don't have the ability to control the commercial influence over the research. And so this is not just my anecdote and my brash opinion on pharmaceuticals. I think drugs have a place and a purpose. I just don't think lowering cholesterol has ever really been all that great of an idea. And, and again, going away from the published literature to the empirical data, empirical data is what is the actual outcome when we lower cholesterol? right? Not who paid for the research that lasted six months or that lasted a year, but what's the actual outcome? And if we look at the vast majority of cholesterol lowering that's gone on in the industrialized worlds has not led to less stroke, has not led to less heart disease. And so if we're trying to use these drugs for the sake of saying they reduce the risk of developing these conditions and therefore the risk of the side effects of the drugs outweigh or, or rather the benefit of the drugs outweigh the risk of the side effects of the drugs, I think we're wrong because empirically we don't see a change. I mean, U.S. spent $4 trillion, actually $4.2 trillion last year in medical expenses. We're ranked, I think, in all of the major industrial countries, it's like a list of 17, we're ranked 17. It's kind of like the school system. You don't throw more money at it and get a better outcome. Well, you don't throw drugs at people and expect that passive modalities are going to magically atone for the self-destruction of oneself. Because when we really look at what heart disease is and stroke risk, these are diseases of choice. They're choices in how you exercise, how you eat, how you sleep, how you handle your stress, the quality of your food, the quality of your air, the quality of your water consumption, you know, the quality of your relationships, the quality of your spiritual grounding. Like These are the things that we know lead to chronic inflammatory disease not this molecule that we are all designed to make. And so it's just such a short-sighted tragedy 
on the behalf of medicine, I think, to throw a drug at this and think that we're going to fix this problem. Exactly. And thank you so much for starting us off that way. You had so many pearls of wisdom there. If we could go back to the low testosterone, because that's something I see a lot as well. I know you do. The statins being a, a huge component of that. But also for women, when women are put on statins and how that dysregulates our female reproductive cycle, among other things. And I'm seeing so much in terms of cognitive challenges, mood dysregulation, and so forth. You touched on the Alzheimer's. That is a big concern because we know there's data that, actual honest data, that shows the correlation there. You know, my concern, Dr. Osborne, is I'm seeing more and more children be put on these medications. Are you seeing that as well? I don't deal as much in pediatric as I do with adults. So I haven't seen that in my own personal practice, but I know what the positions are of the American Pediatric Association. I mean, they're wanting to drug kids as young as eight. Their thought is if your parents have diabetes or heart disease, then statins are so safe that we should just go ahead and put you on it when you're a kid. And of course, that's a nightmare of a mistake because, you know, growth hormones, steroid growth hormones, now we're going to see suppression of sexual development in youngsters as a result of this fear-mongering around cholesterol. I think at the end of the day, if you're a parent watching this, take this line of questioning into the, any doctor who says that they want to put your kid on a cholesterol-lowering drug. There's not a medical situation that I could think of where that's ever going to be a good idea. Not even in cases like hyperfamilial cholesterolemia, where, where there's a genetic component to the high cholesterol it's above and beyond what lifestyle and diet choices could adjust for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing your your insights there. And I don't want to derail from where I was with the low testosterone, but oftentimes, and I agree with you, what's going on in our culture, especially here in the United States and in, in America with not just the pharmaceutical industry, but, you know, our environment, our food supply and so forth, and how that is just really impacting everyone's hormones and especially children, and then trying to normalize that. And I'm just, you know, going to be honest here and tell children that they need to have certain surgeries and take synthetic hormones when they're very young because this is normal to have these types of challenges at a very young age. And that is very, very concerning for me because I do work with a lot of young people. I do work in the areas of autism, you know, mental health and so forth. And I think there's a direct correlation there specifically with this. So I appreciate you walking us through that. Let's talk about testing now. Initially, if your total cholesterol was under 300, you were considered healthy, but somewhere along the way, it got changed to below 200, which is ridiculous. And, you know, again, as we've been discussing, it's obvious that this is a play by big pharma to push more statins. And I'm just curious, why is total cholesterol maybe outdated? Can you break down for us the difference between HDL, LDL, triglycerides? These are things that are, are very confusing for many people. You see, the canned response is that HDL is a type of cholesterol. LDL is a type of cholesterol. HDL is considered good. LDL is considered bad. But LDL is who won the Nobel Prize. So it was bad cholesterol that was found that was necessary to form synapses in the brain, not good cholesterol. So I don't think there's anything as good or bad cholesterol. I think we should just throw all that out and quit demonizing a substance that our body makes. I think, could it be too high? In certain rare cases, yes. 
But the real trigger, if we want to break it down, the real trigger is not HDL, LDL, or total cholesterol, or even triglycerides, although triglycerides can be a problem. Triglycerides are, for those of you who don't know, are fat. They're fat in the bloodstream. So generally, the reason most people have high triglycerides, in my experience, is they're eating such a carbohydrate-rich diet. You know, their 60-plus percent total caloric intake is carbohydrate. And so then the body is so fantastic at conserving energy, right? So if you have enough calories to get through your day, but you're over consuming and, and those calories are coming in as carbohydrates, your body has this uncanny ability to convert those carbs into triglycerides and store them as fat. And when you start doing that aggressively from childhood, the average American diet is 70% carbohydrate. It's a low protein, low fat, high carbohydrate diet. And we've seen the result of that. The result of that is an increase across the board in every chronic degenerative disease known to man. Again, causation and correlation aren't the same thing, but we're now seeing the research play this out. So the research is actually showing like ketogenic diets, reversing seizure disorders, reversing diabetes, reversing heart disease, which is a high fat diet, which we've been told for so many years, high fat is bad and it causes heart disease. Culturally speaking, if you look at like Alaskan Inuit people, the Eskimos, they have 90, 95% fat diet, animal fat, and they have no heart disease until we actually went in and took over their lifestyles and put them on welfare and started shifting processed garbage carbohydrate foods to them. And then we saw some of the largest increases in heart disease mm. and cardiovascular risk in the fastest way we could see, right? We saw the same thing in the, in the Indian culture, the Pima Indian culture, when we shifted them away from a, an animal fat-based, meat-based diet. I think we have propaganda that has told us that high fat, bad, carbohydrates and grains, good. And cholesterol has been part of the vehicle for that message. Yeah. So again, you've got total cholesterol, which is HDL plus LDL. HDL is good cholesterol. LDL is bad cholesterol. This again, this is according to most doctors. I don't, I don't agree with any of this. And then you have triglycerides, which in, for most people is a manifestation of excessive carbs and the body will convert those carbs into triglycerides. And so what happens when you have that scenario, high triglycerides over 150 over time can lead to fatty liver. It'll lead to fatty deposition in your liver tissue, and it'll cause your liver to dysfunction over time, and you'll become a less efficient detoxifier. And, you know, in a world where we have 3,000 chemicals in our food that are recognized and allowed, and we're being told are safe, you got to have a great liver, Yeah, you know, or, or you're going to have a problem. So again, going back to cholesterol, there are other subtypes of cholesterol. We could get into lipoproteins and the like, but I, I don't think those really have much merit either. I think that ultimately when you, when you have cholesterol, the biggest risk is that if that cholesterol is being oxidized, that means that basically oxygen is breaking it down and creating free radicals that can damage your tissue. And the reason why cholesterol will get oxidized for most people is they're eating an inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. So they're eating poorly. Their food choices are so poor that they're malnourished. And so a lot of the way we protect, because fat is oxidizable and cholesterol is, is in part, it's a fat plus a protein. So it's a lipo, what's called lipoprotein, but it can be oxidized. And if you have a poor diet that's low in antioxidants and other antioxidant type nutrients, then that cholesterol molecule has a higher tendency to become oxidized. And when it becomes oxidized, it can create vascular damage that does increase your risk. Mm. But we can't blame that on cholesterol. We've got to blame that on the oxidation process. And so if you have a diet that's low oxidation, 
then the cholesterol risk becomes an, a moot point. We don't have a risk associated with cholesterol being elevated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for walking us through that. I think that's really important. I couldn't agree more. I'm glad you touched on the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's something that I see often. In fact, I'm thinking of a young lady that came to me a couple of years ago, and she was living on a vast amount of ultra-processed vegan foods and, you know, was kind of buying into a lot of propaganda that says, you know, again, what we're talking about, that animal protein is bad, that saturated fats are bad, and just eating a lot of these high ultra processed foods. And she was in her 20s with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So it was shocking and alarming to see that in someone so young. I see it in in people that are a little older, but of course, we're starting to see that more and more now in young people with a lot of these diets that are promoted as being so-called healthy. And unfortunately, it's the exact opposite. And that's why I love having conversations with people like yourself that understand how the body works and are not afraid to share the truth with the public. So I think that's really critical there. Let's get into inflammation and high oxidative stress, as you shared, as the real underlying culprits in heart disease and, of course, dysregulated lipids. And we talked about this last time, and we'll link to this in the show notes, but can you walk us through some of the cascade of downstream effects that occur on diets that are high in these processed foods that contain, you know, a lot of gluten, sugar, the industrialized seed oils, and so forth? Just simply put, most of these things, the biggest problem is, well, there's lots of problems. So one, ultra-processed food, the way most foods are processed in this way, the nutritional value of the food, which is already questionable based on the way we do modern farming, but we strip away additional nutrients from the food. So it it becomes, in a sense, an empty calorie. And even though some of these processed foods are fortified, they're not fortified very aggressively. And what they're being fortified with are synthetic nutrients like folic acid, which are not good for humans, or iron, which you may or may not need. And so the reason why this is especially true of processed grains, the government passed a law in 1943 that you couldn't sell processed grains without fortifying them because they were so responsible for malnutrition. They were causing about 8,000 deaths a year in people from malnourishment. And you know the cereal manufacturers got really smart and said, well, we're going to twist the language. And instead of saying, don't eat cereal, it kills you. They said, eat more of it now because it's fortified and it's even better for you. Wow. And so the fortification laws are, are there. That's why when you look at a box of processed crackers or cereal or bread, you'll always see fortified with, and you'll see terms like folic acid and thiamine and niacin and iron. And that's because they can't sell it because it would malnourish you and potentially kill you if they did without fortification. So fortification of the food was a play by the government to prevent mass malnutrition while trying to feed people a bunch of processed food. So when we talk about ultra processed food, that's just one of the problems. You know, you mentioned seed oils. Seed oils, one of the biggest problems there is most of the seed oils are unsaturated. You know, the difference between saturated and unsaturated fat, because you know, a lot of people hear that word, don't really know what it means, those two terms. Unsaturated fats are less stable and they're more reactive when exposed to light and oxygen. They're basically more prone to breaking down and turning rancid. And so you look at a lot of these seed oils, which are unsaturated, they're highly reactive to the oxygen. So basically what happens when you put a lot of these seed oils in processed food, ultimately you're ending up, you're eating rancid fats that create free radical damage inside the body. The other problem with seed oils is they're very high in omega-6 fatty acids, 
You know, the humans today in today's modern diet culture, the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fats is for most people around 16 to 1. And this ratio and that 16 to 1, 16 omega-6 to 1 omega-3. When that ratio is that skewed, it's prone to creating an inflammatory response because omega-6s are pro-inflammatory and omega-3s are anti-inflammatory, but they're also resolving of inflammation, meaning their job in the body is to help resolve inflammation. Remember, inflammation is not all bad. We use inflammation as a tool of sorts to break down old cells so that we can replace them with new cells. It's part of how the body does maintenance. But when you have such a skewed ratio because of a high seed oil diet, your body's trying to do maintenance, but it doesn't have enough omega-3 to stop the inflammation appropriately. And so instead of just tearing down a few cells, you tear down a lot of them and you create a lot more mass inflammation than what's necessary for the maintenance of the body. And what that does is it accelerates aging because oxidation, that's what it is. It's It's a form of aging. And that when your DNA is becoming oxidized as a result of this type of diet, it shortens your lifespan. Scientists today are measuring something called telomeres, which are these little end caps on our DNA and oxidized oils actually shorten our telomeres over time and can, again, that shortening leads to excessive aging or aggressive aging. Much like you see like a cigarette smoker will look older Mm, than somebody who doesn't of the same age, right? It's because all the garbage in that smoke is oxidative. So if we're just keeping that term oxidation, oxidative, the more of that you're exposed to, the more your body has to use its own nutritional resources to protect you from what's damaging you. And people run out because if your diet's poor, you know, how do we replenish antioxidants through good diet? And if your diet's poor, you're not replenishing them. You're eating things that are oxidative. You're not replenishing with antioxidants. So you're going to age faster. That means you're going to develop chronic inflammatory conditions like heart disease, like diabetes, and people are going to become more obese and they're going to develop systemic inflammation that leads to chronic aches and chronic pains, you know, visual disturbances, visual loss skin disorders, you name it. I mean, it goes through the whole gamut because it impacts every tissue in the body. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. I appreciate you walking us through that. And I always want to remind people that you can't out supplement a poor diet. It's not possible. And so that's why we want to make sure that we're using nutrient therapy appropriately along with dietary therapy, as you know, and you eloquently walked us through what's going on with high glycemic levels and very hard carbohydrate diet and and all of these processed foods. Homocysteine is another one that we see that is often very sky high as a result of inflammation. And it doesn't have to be. I always find that to be interesting. And then, of course, you know, the relationship with the liver as you walked us through and, and how that impacts the thyroid. And I'm glad you said that not all inflammation is bad in terms of how the body works. I think that's really important for our listeners to hear as well. If you've ever wished you could just find that one thing that's causing your suffering, you're not alone. We've all hoped for a magic pill that will fix that one root cause of our pain. But I'm here to tell you there is no such thing as one root cause. I blame influencer marketing and Dr. Google for selling us on these magic pills. They claim to have the answers to all our health problems, yet few people get well from their guidance. In fact, most of the time, I see people getting worse from their guidance because they keep falling down the rabbit hole of information overload that may or may not apply to them. This process is terribly draining on your pocketbook as well as physical and emotional health. 
not to mention what can happen if a diet or supplement is not appropriate for your chemistry. If you're ready to start the healing process, I invite you to book a complimentary consultation with me to see how I can help you overcome things like hormonal imbalances, ADHD, chronic fatigue, depression, anxiety, brain fog, and digestive distress. Go to eat4.life, then click on the free consultation button to book your complimentary discovery call. Dr. Osborne, I'm curious, you know that relationship between the thyroid, the liver, and cholesterol? Can you kind of walk us through that cascade as well? Because we often see these go hand in hand with one another. And of course, it's all in line with what you've shared thus far. But I think it's important for our listeners to understand these relationships because Hashimoto's and thyroid disorders in general are so extremely high. Yeah, I mean, the thyroid hormone regulates human metabolism, right? So if we're just really oversimplifying it, human metabolism is the rate at which we generate chemical responses in the body. There's two types of chemical responses. You have what are called anabolic reactions. So if you ever heard the term anabolic steroid, anabolic is growth, okay? And then you have what are called catabolic reactions, and catabolic is breakdown. You know, think of it as a, as a teeter-totter, like two kids in the playground, right? If they both weigh the same, you have this nice interchange. If your catabolic steroids, though, are the fat kid, okay, then you have this little kid dangling his toes in the air, wondering, you know, whether he's going to fall or not. And that's oftentimes what happens with poor thyroid function is we end up in a state of hypercatabolic or hyper breakdown. So the thyroid sets the basic premise for how our metabolisms can run properly. And it can go either way. Like in some people with low thyroid gain weight, some people with low thyroid can't put weight on, right? Yeah. So part of that is because of these two different kind of dichotomies. You've got reactions that build things, reactions that break things down. And so some people with thyroid disease, low thyroid, break things down too quickly. And some people build fat too easily. And so it could go either way. It's a mixed bag, right? You don't have everybody with Hashimoto's or everybody with a hypothyroid problem gaining weight or, you know, or losing weight. It's, it's mixed. But the thyroid hormone also regulates the liver and, and helps the liver and sends messages to the cells in the liver. Remember, the liver is responsible for about 75% of cholesterol production. So if we're tying this back to cholesterol, a lot of people think, or a lot of doctors think, well, what you eat doesn't really affect your cholesterol because cholesterol synthesis happens in the liver. But the problem with that line of thought is what you eat affects your liver, right? So, you know, it may not affect directly your cholesterol. So like eating foods that have cholesterol, about 25% of your total cholesterol comes from your diet directly from the cholesterol that you eat, right? So if you eat six eggs this morning, it's going to have some impact, minorly impact on your total cholesterol numbers. But What's going to have more of an impact is the food that you eat and how it may or may not damage your liver's ability to properly metabolize fats, including cholesterol. So the liver's responsible for packaging all these things up. And so if you're eating foods that are highly inflammatory, one of the things that's important to understand about cholesterol is it's anti-inflammatory, yeah. right? We make cholesterol to fight inflammation. We make cholesterol to fight infection. So that's one thing I think everyone should know, if you're going to the doctor because you don't feel well and you have a cold or a flu and you're getting your cholesterol measured, that measurement should be thrown out. Like you shouldn't be relying on that particular measurement. Number two, when you're going to the doctor because you don't feel bad, maybe it's not because you have a cold or a flu, but maybe it's because you eat terrible and, and your body's sending you messages to make a change. 
that also can drive your cholesterol up. So we know processed foods, we know that inflammatory foods drive up cholesterol. But the thing is, is it's not a bad thing that, that your body's making more cholesterol when that's happening because that cholesterol is protective. Yes. So we absolutely wouldn't want to lower it, if that makes sense, because it's protecting you from you. And so this is one of the reasons why when people go on a grain-free diet or when people, a lot of times when they go on a whole foods diet, they'll see their cholesterol drop. It's not because cholesterol was ever really the problem. It's because their body's saying, we don't need to make as much to protect you from your choices. So we're going to scale down the production. Again, cholesterol is the wrong enemy. Whether it's going up or down is, has more to do with your body trying to protect you than it has to do with your risk of heart disease. And I think if you understand it in that simplified way, then when you go in and you're told to take a statin because you have a 220 cholesterol, then you can make a better decision for yourself. Remember that your doctor, how do I want to put this? So your doctor is a paid advisor. Right. Yes. Not a dictator. Yeah. Unless you let them be. They'll try to be, mm -hmm. right? They'll try yeah. to be the dictator. Take this or you're going to die. I mean, a lot of doctors use fear. Yes. I've been involved in a lot of situations recently with other family members, some of whom are paying the price for their choices, but I'm advocating with them. So I, I go to their appointments and things like that with them. And the reason why I advocate for them is because the fear base that is used by a lot of practitioners. So like I was recently mm. advocating for a family member in a scenario where they were demanding to do a CAT scan and there was no premise for it. You know, CAT scan in a hospital type setting is about $25,000, $30,000. A CAT scan in a local imaging setting is about $800. And so I kept asking, because again, I was, I was being an advocate. I kept asking, well, why the CAT scan? There's not like, that's not why we're here. And they wouldn't give it an answer, but they sent four different people into the room to push it. Wow. So the first one was a tech. The second one was a nurse practitioner. The next two were both doctors. I just looked at the doctor. I said, you haven't even examined the patient yet. Wow. You haven't even put your hands on him. You haven't even done an exam. And now you want to run high levels of radiation. You haven't even done an exam. And that's not even why we're here. So then he proceeded to do an exam. And so I, I mean, with my background, I watched him do his exam and he did it wrong. Like he was doing a neurological exam and he kind of did it half-assedly and rushed through it and didn't do it right. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is a joke. Wow. And I was glad I was there to advocate yeah. because we just got the hell out of there. There was nothing they were going to do to help that person, but they were using plenty of fear. And, and I've seen this too with a lot of people with, when it comes to heart disease, they're told you need to go on the blood thinner, you need to go on the blood pressure, you need to go on the cholesterol drugs, and you need to go on the diabetic drugs. And if you don't, you're going to die. Oh my no God. arguments. Don't question me. You don't want to do these things and I can't help you. And it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> First of all, if you read the actual guidelines for the care of things like heart disease and diabetes, the first line of care is always diet and nutrition first. Yes. Lifestyle and diet. But these guys, one, they're not qualified to talk about it. Now, most people think they're qualified to talk about it because they're doctors. But, you know, how many doctors go through nutrition classes? Exactly. Right. right? How many doctors go through exercise physiology classes? Mm -hmm. How many of them actually? in physical conditioning and know and understand how to exercise, what kind of exercise is right for what kind of person. They don't. And they just give you the general gist. Well, you do need diet and exercise and that's important. Eat low fat, eat low cholesterol, go jogging, right? <laughs> so the opposite kind of exercise, the opposite kind of diet that would be beneficial. You know, if you look at the American Diabetic Association Dietary Guidelines and the American Heart Association Dietary Guidelines, 
they're horrific. And if you look at who funds a lot of their uppers, well, who funds those organizations, mostly it's like Pepsi and Coca-Cola mm-hmm. and you know, the very junk food companies that yeah. have the most to gain by not being put under scrutiny. Look, I'm not a, opposed to a person drinking a soda. If you want to drink a soda and you want to eat processed junk food, it's your choice. I mean, we, we do live in, in a great place where we can make that choice. But if you're going to make that choice, you need to be prepared for that consequence. Yes. And you don't need to take my tax dollars to treat your consequences in a manner that's inconsistent with an effective outcome. Because what that means is now you're robbing me to pay for your bad choices and the treatment you're getting for your bad choices won't fix your bad choices and won't make you live longer or won't really have a better outcome. And in many cases, the outcomes are far worse yes. as we're now seeing it play out with people who are on polypharmacy where they're on, you know, they're on the, the trifecta, the blood pressure drugs, the cholesterol drugs, and the blood sugar drugs. And these three medicines, there are different classes in each grouping, but these three medicines largely being used cause severe malnutrition that increases the risk for heart disease. Blood pressure medications block vitamin B1. Vitamin B1 deficiency is called beriberi. It causes congestive heart failure and high blood pressure. Again, that's heart disease. You know, a lot of these drugs cause CoQ10 deficiency. CoQ10 deficiency causes cardiomyopathy. That's heart disease. CoQ10 deficiency causes high blood pressure. That's heart disease. Diabetic medications. They block CoQ10, they block folic acid or folate, and they block vitamin B12. Well, the deficiency of those nutrients will elevate your homocysteine, leading to vascular inflammation, which causes heart disease, right? So you end up in this tail-chasing game where you're being given a drug to appease your symptoms without being told, look, your symptoms are your own fault. Take ownership of your body. Exactly. Don't outsource your health to a doctor who doesn't have a vested interest in you. How many times have you been to a doctor where you got five minutes and they didn't hear you? They didn't listen to you. They didn't read the form, the 10 page form they asked you to fill out. Like it was just this really fast visit with a prescription pad that came at the end. That's not healthcare, folks. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Right? That's arm. You ever heard the term armchair quarterbacking, yes. right? Where I'm telling you what to do, but I'm not going to live your life or be responsible for the quality of your life once this drug starts to destroy it. And once your choices continue to destroy it, because I, yeah, I don't think we blame the drugs. I don't think we blame the doctors. People are in the doctor's office. We clearly have to blame them first. Blame is maybe even, it's not a strong word or a harsh word, but it's like, own it. Yeah. You know, you know what you're doing. Most of you know what you're doing. You can't eat ice cream every night with a glass of wine to rinse it back and not exercise and go to a job that's sedentary for eight hours a day and expect that you're not going to become overweight and have increased risk for, for different diseases. You have to own those choices. And sometimes that means being a little bit more stoic about them and, and scaling things back and doing things more reasonable. That for some people is really hard to do. But I think at the end of the day, it has to come down to self-accountability. I'm so glad you said that, Dr. Osborne, because as you know, we live in a society, especially here in the United States, where certain things are normalized that aren't normal. And they're, I'm just going to say it, it's just a very narcissistic way of looking at yourself and the world. It's like, I'm going to normalize this and you have to acquiesce 
to my view of the world rather than, like you said, take accountability and think, okay, I realize big pharma, the medical complex doesn't really have my best interest at heart. And that's why we're doing this important show. I realize these medications don't work. They're actually making the problem worse. And I'm going to choose another path. I'm going to find a practitioner like yourself or someone like me, and I'm going to change my diet and I'm going to understand what deficiencies I have and be able to move forward from there. I also love the fact that you shared, and I appreciate you sharing that story with your family member, because this is something that I see a lot too. And I think, in my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're seeing this too, but we're seeing this become more aggressive. We're seeing more of a push with fear and, you know, again, propaganda. If you don't do this, I had a woman who was told if she didn't take an SSRI, she was going to live a life of depression and anxiety and be basically miserable the rest of her life. Well, what does that do to someone to hear that from a medical professional? I mean, come on. I mean, it's just gotten so out of control. And I just, I want to say, I love your rant because I think it's important. And I, I'm remembering now one of your, I believe earlier patients, Ginger, you talked about Ginger the last time you were on my show. And I believe she was given metformin when she was. It was methotrexate and yeah, she had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. There we go. And so, yep. Thank you. Yeah. Methotrexate. But, you know, I mean, I see metformin given to eight-year-olds. I just saw it last week. So, I mean, it's different class, but we're talking essentially about the same concept of what we're seeing with big pharma and how much more aggressive they are getting. And correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Osborne, but with Ansel Keys' study that kind of triggered this whole thing back in the 50s, my understanding is that that was funded by the sugar industry because they wanted to take the obviously the the you know the microscope off of them and onto something else in part and they also they didn't publish all their data so yeah. you know part of it is you know truths and half truths right so if i tell you something that's true and i frame it in such a way that it's universally true no matter what and i know that that's false and i'm withholding the data that proves that it's false then i'm lying to you even though I'm not lying to you, right? right? And that's really what that boils down to is the Ansel Keys research. A lot of that data was withheld because all, from a lot of the countries during that study, a lot of those countries were thriving on higher fat diets. Mm -hmm. And But the, what they did is they self-selected the countries that had kind of more of a Mediterranean lower fat style of diet. And they self-selected those studies to prove the point they were trying to prove. And that's bias, right? Yeah. And that's the thing about research is that research is supposed to not be biased. It's supposed to be the ever kind of seeking push for truth, yeah. even if that means proving your hypothesis wrong. You know, with grain, I'm not opposed. If somebody comes down the road sometime and proves everything that I've ever taught wrong about gluten, I welcome that because it would be a truth and it'd be a bit an advancement. Like many people have said, it's not gluten, Dr. Osborne, it's the glyphosate. Come prove me wrong because gluten's been around for a long time. And we've, glyphosate's only been around, you know, in farming majorly since the 80s. But we had celiac disease and we had autoimmune disease long before the 80s. And yeah. we know that gluten plays a role in that. So it can't just be glyphosate. It's, you know what I mean? Like, so we seek truth so that we can seek a path that's the right path. Yeah. Ultimately, that's what it should be about. And so even if that truth, affects you know my career or, or somebody else's career and our bottom line 
I get paid to talk sometimes and I get certainly, you know, I have a practice so people pay for my consultations and could a different truth affect my business? Of course it could, but I could also evolve into that different truth exactly. and I could adjust my model and I could be an ethical person that delivers what we know to be true to people so that they can be better helped and better served by it. And I think, you know, when you're a scientist, you have to think about what are we really doing? We're pursuing the truth in an effort to serve humanity. We're not pursuing pseudo truth in a pursuit to serve ourselves and to damage humanity. And I think that's what industry has become. We have pharmacy is directly involved with medical schools and medical curriculum. And the vast majority of textbooks and the vast majority of the curricula is actually influenced by them. The vast majority of medical research post-graduation is influenced by them. And as we've seen numerous times, these companies, you know, look at Pfizer, look at some of these others like Bayer. I mean, how many times have they been fined for criminal offenses against humanity? Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's not a small amount. Like it's a regular track record. I always say it's like you wouldn't invite a crook, somebody who'd stolen from people and murdered people into your house and for dinner and walk them around and then go to bed and leave them there, right? <laughs> like you would certainly be a little bit more cautious about your approach with somebody with that kind of a background or record. And so why are people allowing doctors to push these products that are being produced by people with known criminal track record? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense, but I think big reason why is we don't have a media in our country anymore that yeah. reports truth. We have a media that this was interesting. So like in the, remember when the tobacco ads ran all oh, the yeah. time, right? And so what happened, there was a point when the government was going after tobacco because it was no longer acceptable to smoke. They had to have a private meeting with the media corporations because the media corporations were like, no, we're not going to quit taking money from tobacco because they're our number one source of revenue. So that private meeting that was held, they actually agreed at that point. That is how direct to consumer drug commercial ads came to be was it was a replacement for big tobacco. And so now the number one source of revenue for all major news media outlets is drug companies. Yeah. So when you have a pandemic and you're pushing a non-tested, non-safe vaccine on the masses, mm -hmm. you know, you have to ask, well, is this a truth that's being pushed or are these media companies scared of losing their bottom dollar, their revenue? And that, you know, you can't have that kind of influence. The media is supposed to be the fifth column or the the truth sayers, if you will, the one that call out falsities on both sides, on all sides, right? If they exist and they're supposed to be a non-biased and they swear to be non-biased and report truth, but that we just don't have that anymore. So when we don't have the watchdogs and the watchdogs are being paid by the people who stand the most to gain and benefit from it and the doctors are being benefited in the much the same way, then you end up with corruption. And that's where we're at. We have a super corrupt that's why we spend $4 trillion a year and we have the worst care in the world. Actually, I was talking to a friend of mine who went down to Cancun because he was looking at dual citizenship. And he came back and he was telling me just how wonderful the hospital system there was. Wow. He said it's like a first class, like compared to if you go in an emergency room somewhere in America, he says it's, it's become like a third world country. Like mm -hmm. you wait six hours. Yeah. The, the rooms are dirty. It's filthy. They're the rude. doctors in there <laughs> don't know much. They're not kind. They don't have empathy. He says, but in Cancun, it was night and day difference. Wow. So here we are, America, the, supposedly the greatest country in the world with the greatest medical care in the world. We're now being taken over or surpassed by a country like Mexico because of corruption, mm -hmm. right? Because of corporate interest. 
I know I ran it a lot. No, I love your I, I love your rants. I'm so glad that you're sharing this because people need to hear it. I wanted to just add on to what you said about, you know, obviously in this country, the ads are ridiculous. When I'm working out in the morning at the gym, you know, every other commercial is some kind of drug ad. It's ridiculous. I want to let people know along those lines that I mean, I think there's a compartmentalization that happens. I don't know if you see this, Dr. Osborne, but somehow the jabs are safe, but, you know, maybe some of these other meds where they actually got caught like Vioxx or not. And I'm like, wait a minute, these are the same people making these products. Why do you think in one area they're going to be wanting to help humanity versus a medication? I mean, it's just very illogical thinking. Just wanting to be mindful of your time, Dr. Osborne. One thing I wanted to touch on before you go is I loved it when you said about the diet and moving into more of a a grain-free whole foods diet where you're getting lots of antioxidant-rich foods, you're getting good quality animal proteins and, and fats and so forth. Sometimes cholesterol can go up when that happens. And I always tell people, this is not a bad thing. This is your body adjusting. You've been eating a lot of processed foods for a long time. Going back to the liver, your liver needs time to heal. And those detoxification processes that occur, those take time to work themselves out. So if you go to your doctor while you're working with someone that's helping you with a whole foods diet, and you notice that your lipids actually increase, that's not a bad thing. And I just wondered if you had anything to add on to that. I'm probably radical on one side in my belief there is that I don't even measure cholesterol. I think it's a waste of money. I think it's a waste of blood. I agree. (laughs) Unless you have familial problem, to me, it's not worth spending a lot of resource monitoring. Yeah. The reality is, and this was a major study, I think it was published in 2010, and it was a non- funded study. So like now I say non-funded, it was not funded by the industry, mm-hmm. but it was like 66,000 women. What they found was that when you lowered their LDL, they had worse outcomes, which to me says it all. I don't think you look at cholesterol as a measurement to say, I'm getting healthier. I'm not getting healthier. I think, you know, if you're going through process and your cholesterol goes up a little bit, so be it. Yeah. There are also research studies, major studies, major meta-analyses of the data that show that people with the highest LDL live longest. Yes. yes. And so, you know, maybe your diet change is manipulating your LDL up because there's a benefit, you know, and there are lots of benefits. I, I think we've talked about some of them. Mm-hmm. They make your sex steroids, they form your nerve synapses, they help you make vitamin D and CoQ10. And there's a benefit to those processes. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's going up because your body's doing more and using it more and, and working with it more to help you heal and repair yourself more consistently. So instead of looking at cholesterol as something you need to monitor because it's dangerous if it goes up, think about it as if you have a higher LDL, you just may live longer. And so if you want to monitor it in that regard, hey, more power to you, but don't get focused on that marker. I think just look at it historically. We, you know, they call it a theory. It's called the cholesterol theory of disease because it's never been proven. And the reason it's never been proven is because there's a good chunk of doctors and scientists that have data that show that it's wrong. We can't just ignore that part. Like you don't just get to sweep that under the rug and and ignore it without consequence. And so I would just say, don't be the experiment of your dogmatic doctor's religious-like belief that cholesterol is the enemy. 
take your health into your own hands. And if you are exercising and eating well and you lose weight, you feel better, why would you worry about your cholesterol? Mm, exactly. You know, and if it does go up, but you feel better and you've lost 25 pounds, is that cholesterol going up worse than you maintaining 25 pounds of fat? Is that worse than not exercising? I, I would argue that you can't look at it as one simplistic risk factor. You have to look at the body as, a, as it's complex and diverse and variable as things are. You have to look at it in that framework. And so as a general rule of thumb, don't let one test create such fear in your life that that fear creates an oxidative damage to your existing cholesterol and puts you into a place of heart disease sooner. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the fear piece, you know, that was kind of threaded throughout as well and how that impacts the body and how the trauma from fear can create disease in the body. That's another show, of course, <laughs> but I want to make sure to touch on that. You also mentioned exercise, which us, you know, we all know that, but developing a practice of who you choose to interact with. You mentioned your spiritual practice. You know, prayer is very important to me. My relationship with God is very important to me, and I do that every day. And that really grounds me. But thinking about, are you on your phone all the time? Are you on social media all the time? Who do you surround yourself with? Think about these things and just make a little note of how you feel when you're exposed to these things, because this is another aspect of of heart disease, as we've been discussing. So I want to, again, thank you so much for your wisdom and your knowledge and your time, Dr. Osborne. I always love talking with you. Of course, we will be linking to your website and the Gluten-Free Society and the show notes. Do you have any last words before we end our time today? Not really. I'd just say if your health is failing you, the first thing you should do is look in the mirror. Yeah. Don't blame medicine for your problems. Don't blame your doctor. You know, look in the mirror. Think long and hard about what you've been doing. If you honestly, truly don't have an answer, like if you think you've been doing it right and your health is failing you, then work with somebody who is versed in functional care. It also doesn't have to be a do-it-yourself project. So like if you are doing everything you know to be right, but if you're not, make those changes first. There's seven fundamentals, right? Super easy. Eat real food is number one. Get plenty of sleep. Exercise and move your body regularly. Get outside and get sunshine. Breathe clean air. Drink clean water. And mitigate and manage your stress. If you do those seven things consistently well, you're putting all the odds in your favor because it's those seven factors for most people that drive their disease. And if you're doing those things and your health is failing you, that's when you work with somebody who can help you kind of tease out where you're failing. But if you're not doing those things, start there. They're free. Every one of the things on that list costs you zero dollars, but may have life impacting change for you. So dive in. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Thank you so much. Again, really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I trust my conversation with Dr. Osborne was eye-opening. Please share it with your loved ones. As we discussed, cholesterol isn't the demon Big Pharma makes it out to be. But because they can capitalize on inefficient lab values, industry-funded studies, and fear-based marketing, the medical cartel complex has gotten away with scaring people into submission. If you are on a statin and your doctor is gaslighting you, I encourage you to rethink the science he or she is using to justify this choice. There are many things you can do to reduce your risk of heart disease, beginning with diet and exercise, and managing the stress in your life. You can reach Dr. Osborne at drpeterosborne.com 
and theglutenfreesociety.org. I believe sharing is caring, so I have a favor to ask. If my show is helpful to you, I would be so grateful if you would leave me a rating and review in iTunes. It is through sharing that we create community, eliminate guilt and shame, and bring about healing. Thank you in advance for taking three minutes out of your day to support my show so others can find me. Don't miss an episode of Eat for Life. Be sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player.